classic track to start the hour with Cypress Hill and and going out like that. And that's the choice of our guest presenter. As I said, PhD, uh, he's a doctor, he's an associate professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychology. He's a director of the Child Guidance Clinic at the University of Cape Town. He's an author and uh, next to me I have a book which he has just penned called Nation on the Couch. It is filled with those little sticky coloured markers uh, because there was so much in it that uh, triggered something in my mind that I wanted to make sure that I could ask him about. I could call you doctor, I could call you professor, may I call you Wabi? Of course, Michelle. Good morning (laughs) to you and the listeners. Good morning, Wabi. We always ask our guest, first up, the choice of songs. You've actually chosen two fantastic tracks. You've chosen Tupac Shakur and we'll be playing him later. And uh, we started out with Cypress Hill and you, of course, begged us uh, to obtain the radio edit version. Well, we got as close as we could get. Why that choice? Well, Michelle, uh, this song came out more or less in, in, in the early 90s, 1993, yeah. I think, um, of Cypress Hill's second album, um, you know, the legendary Black Sunday. Yep. Uh, and I think it speaks very much to the, the battle, the ongoing battle between the urban poor on the one hand yeah. and what we ordinarily call the system nowadays um, as propped up, if you will, by the by the police. And of course, when one thinks about Black Lives Matter and the death of George Floyd, those concerns that Cypress Hill was singing about in, in, in the early 90s are still very much part and parcel of, of American public consciousness. But I also think that there's relevance to the South African situation. Um, the book, as, as you know, um, looks... In, in certain chapters at the experience, the, the shameful experience of, of poverty and how as yeah. a result um, the battle is all about respect um, and I think that's what this song, at least according to my reading, is about. No matter what the world throws at me, I ain't going out like that. I yeah. will retain, I will fight for my respect. Wabi, well, I, I want to start... Um in, uh, there, there's so many points to start at that actually I said to my producer this is going to be a challenging interview because I feel like and a conversation because I feel like there's so many different things to talk about but what I would like to do for our listeners is I'd like to clarify for our listeners when we talk about psychology psychotherapy psychoanalysis can we give a, a simple explanation of how they fit into the ecosystem that is our mind and society if it's possible. Michelle, I think that's an excellent question to to begin with. Traditionally, the discipline of psychology has given society a wide berth, actually, which is why psychology and psychotherapy, which one might think of as a subfield, practical, applied subfield of psychology, um, have been accused for decades of of social irrelevance. So the relationship between psychology and society is a fraught one. And hence, the idea that a nation might have a mind um, or a psyche is is certainly an, an unusual proposition. Yeah. I think the case with psychoanalysis is a little bit different. Psychoanalysis is often written off as an elitist pursuit. But in fact, if one digs back into the early history of psychoanalysis, it was very connected to um, 
social issues, particularly when one looks at the, the generation of analysts that immediately succeeded Freud, analysts like um, Pinnacle, uh, Wilhelm Reich, Annie Reich, uh, Edith Jacobson, and, and, and many others. So um, psychoanalysis and psychology are very different fields, and, and I'm not a psychoanalyst, I'm a, I'm a psychologist. Yeah. But what I do in this book is I use psychoanalytic theory to try and illuminate social issues in our country. Um, it's not something that, that is that is regularly done, but I do think that within particular strands of psychoanalytic practice nowadays, there there is very much an interest and an urgency about understanding social issues like racism um, from a psychoanalytic uh, perspective. You know, I was I was really interested. Um, you talk about um, the relevance of psychology. I mean, certainly we can talk about the relevance of psychology in the world, but also in the country as well. And On the Couch, uh, Nation on the Couch does talk to that. But before we even get to Nation on the Couch, the issue of rele- relevance in psychology, and you've written a book about that, um, is, is an important one because what's part of that conversation is something that you wrote about, and I think it was in the Daily Maverick that I read it. You wrote about how we look at the at education, that we've, we keep saying we need to, for example, decolonize psychology, but we need to start look at it from a different angle and start to say why and how do we look at um, education and why do we need it, etc. If you could perhaps expand on that, it was a fascinating read. Sure. So, so Michelle, um, I, I realize that I'm swimming upstream here as, as far as the, the decolonial turn is concerned, which really has be, uh, gotten mainstreamed, I would say, not just in South Africa, but, but around the world. Um, I, I have a particular, I suppose, perspective on, on decolonization. It, when I think about colonialism, for example, and, and the trauma of colonialism, uh, I think about how psychotherapists would, would go about dealing with, with trauma. Um, and fr- from my vantage point, I would say that trauma is not something that can be removed from yeah. a person's psyche. You can't de-traumatize someone. Yeah. Uh, what you can do is you can change their relationship to trauma. And similarly with, co- with colonialism, we can't decolonize um the academy, for example, but what we can do is we can change our relationship with with colonialist legacies um, yes. within the academy. That's a very different thing. So, you know, terminologically, the decolonization just doesn't sit very well with me. But the other thing, which I think is also important, just to bring up, is I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that we're not paying enough attention to our schools. Yes. There's a lot of focus being placed on universities, but the vast majority of young South Africans will never see the inside of um, Sarah Bartman Hall, for example, yeah. um, at UCT. Um, we are we, we we really are missing we're missing something very important here. That if we if we think that the university is where the action's at, then I think we are excluding the vast majority of of young South Africans, and and that's something that that troubles me deeply. We need to go back to ECD. Yeah, the, the, the entire schooling system yeah, is, is, is a shambles. Every year yeah. when the, the World Economic Forum releases statistics, particularly on the state of maths and science education in, in schools around the world, so that's yeah. typically right at the bottom of the list, if not stone last. And, and this is real implications for, for young South Africans 
um, employability. The damage is being done in our schools. And, and unless, unless we start um, make, prioritizing uh, the, the, the sorry state of affairs in, in our schools, then really as a nation, we're on a hiding to nothing. It also, you, you also raise the issue of, of why, we would, why we would get an education. So as you say that many, I mean, and, and I'm quoting you here, is that, that in, whether university students like it or not, they are an emergent social elite. And so what it does is it, it makes certain assumptions, as you say, about um, those who are inside the system, even though they're arguing that they're still outside the system, but those who are inside the system and those who are truly outside the system, those who are not previously disadvantaged but deeply disadvantaged still. Yeah, so, so Michelle, I, I would say that a university education is a socializing experience in the sense that it prepares one for entry into um, the, the economic system of the nation. And I think that's why if one looks at student protesters, for example, they typically come from um, the, the undergraduate years. I think the further students get into the university system when they hit postgrad, postgraduate uh, studies, they've been socialized to, to such an extent that often what they just want to do is get their education done and, and, and start up um, yeah. in, in, in the world of work. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, the, 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 I suppose the revolutionary zeal, if you will, shows itself um, very much in, in, in the undergraduate years. But, but ultimately, why do people go to university? They, they go to university because they're, they're seeking a, a life of respectability, a life of dignity. At least I think that's the case for, for, for most people. Let's talk about seeking a lack of, life of, um, of, of respectability maybe, but also something else as well, of opportunity. And that's really um, some of the issues that you raise in Nation on the Couch. Briefly explain to us, I mean, this is a story about how we understand South Africans as a society, what, what's almost like our national, um, national psyche, our national, um, our national mind. Talk to us how you break that down. So, Michelle, the, the book is essentially structured in a way that, that really affirms the, the deep fractures within yeah. national life. So I look at emotions like shame, envy, and, and impasse, and I assign these emotions to the, the major social groups, I would say, in, in South African life. So I, I look at the, um, the, the poor and working classes and, and the shame of, of poverty. Um, yeah. I look at the, the rising black middle class and the the envy that that must eventuate when 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 particularly impoverished black students arrive at elite institutions yeah capitalist society is just shot through with this ethic of of social comparison and so envy and i don't use it in a pejorative sense i use it in a in a technical analytic sense a climbing sense yeah envy is, is inevitable and then i i talk about impasse in relation to white south africans and and as I see it, for many white South Africans, their, their ambivalence um, around uh, how to integrate into South African life. So as you can hear, the, the book um, recognizes that depending on your position in South African society, in psychological terms, you've got a, you've got a completely different complex um, that's being activated um, all the time. 
Now, that might lead some to think, well, if, if the nation is, is so fractured, how can one then speak about a national psyche? Yeah. And, and my, my argument there is, and it's a bit of a, I suppose, paradoxical one, that what unites us as a nation is our alienation. And again, I use the term alienation in, in a technical sense. I, yeah. I use it to, to, to mean a relation of relationlessness. And, and the, the, the large argument flowing from that is that so many of our social pathologies, be it violence, be it inequality, be it racism, and those are the three major problems, I, social problems I look at, can be considered ultimately relational pathologies. So the, the idea of alienation or estrangement um, yeah. is, is what animates the, the, the South African psyche, generally speaking. You know, it's, it's um, interesting in the book you talk again, um, at some point you talk about, you know, you've mentioned inequality so we, as one of the issues, about the, 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 how the fact that it's about income distribution as opposed to no income. And, and that inequality is what causes, um, as you say, so much alienation is that if we all have the same, then it's different to like, um, you know, as I think it was Nick Benadel who said, it's easier to get from Santon to London than it is to get from Alexander the, the t- to to Santon um, for for many people, and it, it's that which causes um, perhaps the envy or the shame. That that distinction, Michelle, between absolute poverty and relative poverty is is critical. Yeah, um, and and again, it speaks to the this invidious culture of, of social comparison that is just written into uh, capitalist society. Um, yeah. the, the, the literature also is, is pretty well established on this point, that when one, when one looks at homicide rates, for example, it's strongly associated with, with relative poverty, i.e. In, inequality. Um, there, there is something psychologically deeply damaging about living in a land of plenty while feeling yourself utterly deprived yeah. of, of benefiting from those fruits. And the fury that can come with that. Yes. So, so the, the, the envy breaks out um, and it, it shows itself it, as resentment, as resentment, as rage, um, yeah. as fury and manifests as, as destruction. Um, yeah. and, and of course, the, the the university protests and the hundreds of of millions of, of rands of damage uh, I read through that prison. You know, Wabi, um, you 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 mentioned capitalism a little earlier, and I was fascinated in the book. Um, I'm just trying to find the place. You talk, you do quite a um, a focus on um, a critique of capitalism, but but with. It, it threw the lens of Marx, and I found, I mean, it was stuff that I didn't actually know. I wonder if you could talk about it, because as someone who's interested in the crea- the creative worlds and the creative sort of mind, you, you engaged in it in such an interesting way. Perhaps you could talk about that to our listeners. Sure. So, so Marx 
has a very particular theory of, of, of human nature. And, and I realize that for the Marxists out there, some of, some of you might be throwing your hands up in the air that Marx said no such thing. Uh, but I take this position anyway, um, following prominent commentators, that, that he did have a position on what human nature is, despite the unpopularity nowadays in these sort of postmodern times about talking about human beings in you know, quite essentialist ways, that we have a human nature. And the, the basic argument for Marx is that capitalism essentially perverts human nature. Um, and and the, three, the three legs of, of human nature um, for Marx, um, I mean, the one, the one really is, is um, autonomy. When one, when one thinks about um, how labor works um, under capitalism, workers are, are, not, are not really free um, to, to, to be themselves um, in, their, in, in their labor. They are coerced, really, to work often in, in, in the most atrocious uh, conditions. So autonomy, freedom, is, is, is one of the, the basic human needs that is perverted through the, the, you know, the, the capitalist mode of production. Um, sociality, sociality, our, our need for, for relationships um, is, is another human need that is, that is perverted. You know, workers see one another as, as rivals, not as, not as comrades in a capitalist um, setup. And then yeah. finally... Because because labor is is coerced, there's very little room for for creativity, um, which is the third leg of of Marx's um, theory of, of human nature. The one thing that that capitalism denies its workers um, is the luxury of of free time. Um, work under capitalism that. means that yeah. you are either at work, recovering from work, or getting ready to to go to work. The, the the kinds of talents that can be pursued, like learning how to paint or learning a new language or learning to play an instrument, all these things require time. And that's the one thing that, that capitalism denies its workers. So as, as these basic human needs for sociality, for autonomy, for creativity are perverted, what results is a state of, of alienation. But not just yeah. in a in a in a psychological sense. Um, alienation is written into the very material structures of capitalist life. You know, um, when I read it, I, I started to think about Maslow's hierarchy, and I started to think, well, in a way, Maslow's hierarchy feels like it should be turned on its head, because it it it, it starts with with a with, with a proposition of certain propositions, and maybe those propositions could be differentiated. I suppose with, with Maslow's, you know, starting with the, the basic material needs and then ending up with self-actualization right at the top, my, my suggestion, Michelle, would be not so much that the, the pyramid should be inverted, but, but to, 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 to recognize, exactly, to recognize that the distinction between material needs and psychological needs is, is an ideological one. Um, yeah. The two go hand in hand. It, it makes very little sense to talk about material needs being primary over psychological needs or psychological needs being primary over material needs. One cannot be fully human um, if one looks at what the, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum has to say about what it is to be human. One can't be fully human unless psychologically and materially we are intact in our lives. 
when when there is damage on 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 in either of those respects, then we cease to be fully human. So maybe um, it's not a hierarchy or a triangle, but maybe it's it's either a, a shifting spectrum or it could even be a circle. I mean, I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying to think what the diagram would be. Wabi, yeah. um, we need to go to sport, but uh, when we come back, we're going to play your second track. And uh, we'll also be chatting to your guests as well. We're chatting to uh, Prof. Wabi Long, who is a, an associate professor, a doctor, a clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychology. Also, the author of the book, Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. That's just the way it is. We can feel time ticking away, and that's just the way it is. Tupac Shakur changes. That's the choice of our guest presenter, Wabi Long. We've been chatting to him about his new book, Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. And uh, we have his guests on the line as well. Wabi, before we go into your guests, I want to quickly ask you, with regards to uh, one of the closing things in the book, is you talk about hope. And in discussing hope, I started to think about that... um, that phrase of of toxic positivity versus tragic optimism and how we look at the concept of hope as we move forward. Perhaps you could just address that. Sure, Michelle. Um, So it's a good point to to address that question now, especially after what we were talking about just before the break about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. the position I take when it comes to hope, and, and I realize that hope is, the question of hope is, is such, an, such a pressing one, I think, for the South African public. Yeah. I, I, I really try to um, look at it in its, in its different dimensions. So hope for me is, is, is not just something to be thought about in, in psychological terms. It has material dimensions as well. And to, to cut a long story short, the, the argument I make is that without material change um, in this country, um, hope will, will remain a pipe dream. If we're, if we're just going to try and psychologize our way to a better future South Africa without looking at the very real uh, material violences that are part and parcel of, of our everyday lives and we're really not going to not going to go anywhere you know you mentioned the better future and one of the things that you raise in the book which um is absolutely critical i believe is this idea of the importance of understanding as opposed to just wanting to get better and yes. uh, i think that 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 is something that really needs to be addressed we need to start learning to understand one another as opposed to just saying there's a GDP that we need to address. Yes, um, I, I agree, Michelle. If one thinks about how psychotherapy works, if, if the patient just wants to get better, um, then they're not going to last in therapy <laughs> because the process is, is up and down. And, and the minute they hit uh, uh, the down, then they're going to run for the hills. <laughs> and, and I think the same, the same thing applies, really, when we think about South Africa as a patient. If, if we just want South Africa to get better, let's, let's finish the, you know, let, let's, let's get out of this, this vicious cycle of, of, of violence and, and, and racism and, and, and all the rest. Um, that, that's one thing, but it's, it's another thing to understand what it is, psychologically speaking, that is driving these, these social problems. There's enormous value, I think, yeah. in understanding 
um, the problems that beset us rather than in just rehearsing them and describing them ad nauseum. And describing them again, I mean, as you say, that the term senseless violence, it just, even as a term, it doesn't make sense anymore. It's like, done, yes. you know. Yeah, the, the violence that, that grips our nation is not senseless. Yeah. Um, it makes perfect sense, given, yes. given the history of our country and given the way um, psyches respond to trauma. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We're going to go into your first guest, Dr. Lane Benjamin, and um, you've 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 uh, brought Dr. Benjamin onto the show. Uh, Dr. Benjamin is a clinical psychologist with a project called Restore, Reconnect, Rebuild, R Cubed, which I have to say sounds completely fascinating. Uh, why did you decide to invite Dr. Benjamin on the line? Michelle, the, the book that I wrote is essentially all about violence and, and violence of different kinds, whether yes. it's interpersonal, structural, symbolic, and and Lane is, is a, a very respected colleague of mine who has worked with individuals and communities that have experienced all forms of violence. And in her work, what she's done is she's developed knowledge from the ground that equips people with a deeper understanding of, of how trauma works. And cross-generationally, in fact, and, and she's been awarded um, uh, an Ashoka Fellowship for her work back in 2006, a postdoc fellowship from Stellenbosch in 2017. And and in her, her work with R-Cubed, um, she works alongside diverse individuals, schools, and communities to yeah. address the systemic effects of stress, trauma, and injustice. So I think she's the perfect person to, to have on the show. Dr. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us. You can call me Lane. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> I'm always, I'm never sure, like, okay, where do we, <laughs> but nevertheless. Lane, could you just tell us about um, R-Cube, the work that you do at your consultancy? Yes. So, um, as, as well we said, um, it stands for Restore, Reconnect, Rebuild. And our work is really based on the premise that what we're seeing in our country in fact, globally in many countries, yeah. it's generations of unresolved historical trauma yeah. that lies at the heart of all these problems. Um, so, so our work is very uh, synergistic with what Wabi's well, written in the book, um, but we use the language of historical and intergenerational trauma to provide the context for understanding how our past keeps repeating itself in the present and it's preventing us from actually moving forward. Um, so... What we, the process we follow in our work is to develop trauma-informed approaches with, with groups or with systems, yeah. which is really about disrupting those cycles of trauma. And, and we look at it through our kind of, our physiology, because it affects us, you know, neuropsychologically as well, yeah. how it affects our relationships and the communities and organizations, institutions and the broader systems. Um, Lane, I want to, you, you, you talk about, and, and, and Wabi's mentioned, intergenerational trauma. Um, I want to just sort of tease that apart a bit. And, and the reason I, I, I'm wondering is when we talk about intergenerational trauma, how far back can it go? And does it then become, part, does it then become um, is this the right word, physiological? Does it then become part of our DNA, for example? And I'll hand that to both of you. Maybe you want to start, Lane. Mm. So, I mean, the, the fascinating and complex thing about trauma is that it has no sense of time. So hmm. it doesn't really matter how far back we go. But, but I think what we have 
denied in our own country far too long is our history. Yes. And we need to go much further back. Um, and I think only in the last few years have we become more conscious of uh, colonialism and slavery and the impact it's having. But still, still not really. We haven't internalized the, the wounding that it's done. So we really try and contextualize what's happening in the present and connecting it to the unconscious trauma that we're carrying both individually and collectively because it's that trauma that's continuing to fuel our behavior and how we see people, how we're weighing up situations or interpreting other people's behavior. Um, but it's, it's, it's dark and it's messy and it's a very complicated <laughs> space to be in and to understand. But, but we have to um, because we know that th- that transmission of that unresolved trauma does happen. There's been lots of research to show that it does get passed on through our physical bodies, through our genetic makeup. Hmm. It gets passed on through the way we socialize our children and our families and what we're learning from the media. Um, and also how we it gets passed on through our constant reenactments of this violence and trauma um, and what we're modeling over and over again. So, you know, so when I talk about violence, when I talk about trauma, People automatically go to kind of physical, sexual violence, yeah. um, child abuse. It, it's much deeper. It's much broader than that. It's it's about multiple deep losses, disconnection, oppression, uh, discrimination that people are experiencing every day, even through you know microaggressions in the present. Yeah. That all compound and and impact on this intergenerational trauma that we're already carrying. You you, you mentioned Lane. You mentioned symbolic violence and and Wabi in the book. You talk about um, how, for example, some of the students that you worked with understood symbolic violence better than they um, could, could maybe not understood, but acknowledged symbolic violence better than they acknowledged real violence in terms of some material that you showed them. Yes, yes, uh, Michelle. So I think this is really on, on academics because academics by and large are part of the, the, the middle classes. And, and so therefore we... We need to remain alert to the different forms of violence. We cannot focus only on symbolic violence to the exclusion of other more, if you will, concrete um, forms of violence. And, and if I can just sort of jump in uh, in, in relation to the, the previous question about intergenerational um, trauma, yeah. um, Michelle, you know, the past, is, the past is never done, despite what we might um, want um, for, for ourselves. Uh, Jonathan Jansen has this, this great phrase, knowledge in the blood. You know, why is it yeah. that the born freeze who didn't live through apartheid are so traumatized by the history of this country? And if, if we ever wanted proof that trauma travels uh, across generations, that is it. And the, the repetition compulsion, the, the so-called senseless violence that plays itself over and over and over again in the life of our nation is a giveaway clue <laughs> that the past, the past is not done. And yeah. it, it will out, it will out, and it will show itself until we begin to, to grapple with it. And as, as Lane says, I do think that public consciousness is shifting, particularly in recent years. There's a growing recognition that we can't move forward until we, we, we look closely at, at the, the, the legacies of colonialism and the past. You know, um, you, you both talk to, to such an interesting journey that we have to 
to deal with in this country. And I suppose that when it comes to trauma and, as you say, violence in all the forms that um, South Africans experience it, it does make the the view on healing. I mean, I look at it and I wonder, is it even possible? And I suppose we need to then understand from both of you, I'd love to know, what does healing mean for you? Elaine, I'll, I'll start with you. So, yeah, healing for me is not psychology. <laughs> psychology <laughs> has has a contribution to make, but there are many other forms of healing. Yeah, and I think what I'm what I'm learning and what I've learned from working in communities where people are living with um, historical and current violence every day. Yeah. That there are so many different pathways to healing, and and that's why we we love this idea of a trauma informed approach. That so many it, you don't need to have a health professional or a social development practitioner doing the healing, um, as long as we are emotionally intelligent and conscious and have a deep understanding of the complex layers of trauma, we're able to facilitate healing. So, so I think you know in our work when we're working in communities. When people are given a framework to think about the experiences that they're going through now differently and relate yeah. it and connect it, breaking down that alienation from our history, they're able to connect it to our historical context. You can almost see a, just a complete sense of relief that people start to understand that their lives make sense and what's going on in their communities are starting to make sense. And as Wabi said, the violence all starts to make sense as well. Um, and they're able to to share more of their stories and, and break down that sense of shame and silence that perpetuates the trauma. Um, and that's because trauma, I often use trauma and disconnection synonymously because that's what trauma does. It, it disconnects us, yes. alienates us, and marginalizes us. And as soon as you, you're able to create that um, in a space for people, they start to connect and start to see each other as human beings. Um, I think, you know, an example that we often use in training is uh, the way we greet each other. We should be greeting each other as Africans. Um, the new concept of Naya, which which was carefully explained to me and is so appropriate for healing. It's, it's about re- we see you. It's about yeah. recognizing that you see the, the person's history, their ancestors, the you know, yeah. the, all the background. And that you're seeing them for who they are completely. Yeah. And and in response to that, you're saying "sikona," which means I'm present. I'm here with you. And that's what healing requires when it comes to trauma: is presence. So yeah. I like I like the, what what we were saying about about time earlier. That you know, African time is healing time. We're not rushing around trying to make money, get jobs, do do all these things. We're making time for each other as human beings and seeing each other as human beings and creating connection. Um, it's, I think there are also, in terms of the neuroscience, because we draw a lot on neuroscience and how um, our brains are affected by trauma, it's, it's really supported so much of what we already know in our bodies as indigenous yes. healing. You know, there's so many popular mindfulness, meditation, uh, tremoring, all these kind of trendy, contemporary ways of healing that actually have their roots in very ancient healing practices yeah. that, that neuroscience yeah. proves actually does work. But again, it's something we've disconnected from from our, our own history. We've forgotten that we have the knowledge and the trauma that yeah. can help us heal. 
Lane, we have to leave it there. We need to go to Wabi's second guest. That's Dr. Lane Benjamin, who is a clinical psychologist with Restore, Reconnect, Rebuild, R-Cubed, a consultancy that focuses on trauma. And uh, uh, Wabi, your second guest on the line, Ms. Pateshi Matenge, is a clinical psychologist. Um, Your choice of Ms. Pateshi? Pateshi is is another colleague of mine, Michelle, Um, and I'm a great admirer of, of her work. She's a clinical psychologist um, for several years um, in Johannesburg. She has been involved in providing psychological services in primary health care, specifically in the Ekuruleni Health District. Um, and then she's also been a member of the mental health team that was tasked with investigating the impact of the, the life is relocation process, which was part of a broader uh, arbitration process under Justice Mosaneke. So Batetsi's work, I think, is, is incredibly important because it, it really showcases what's possible um, within a, a, a discipline like, like clinical psychology. Yes, we, we're, we're often private practitioners, but many of us also are, are doing very important uh, community work. Batetsi, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. Is Thank it, you for having me. Is it fine for me to call you by your first name? That's okay. But right. That's correct. <laughs> but Etsy, uh, you know, Wabi has spoken about the work that you do. Um, I suppose one could say the public domain as opposed to private consultancy in that. Talk to us a little bit about the work that you are doing in the Ekoroleni Health District. Mm. Yes, so um, I'm actually just just as a point of correction, I'm actually not at the Ekuruleni district for now. Yeah. But I was um, in the primary health care system before. Okay. And I worked in the community clinics where I served about four clinics um, in the East Rand. And I provided psychological services to um, patients at the clinics. Yeah. And these are obviously, you know, at grassroots levels. And, um, it was just very interesting to, as a psychologist, to work in that kind of system um, and to provide uh, psychological services on that level, uh, where it is very much needed by a lot of people. Yeah. And it just we see just how psychologically it's important for us to do that kind of work um, at the clinics and with people that can't ordinarily access a mental health care services in private practice, for example. You know, it feels like I'm um, just thinking of Wabi's book, but also what you're talking about. Every single South African should have the opportunity to have therapy of some sort. And and certainly just listening to what um, Dr. Benjamin was saying earlier as well. You say that your experience, like working in the field, so to speak, was, was very interesting. Um, what, what, tease that out for us. Hmm. You see, um, Michelle, it's just, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, material that you're confronted with um, in the primary health care system. And obviously there we're dealing with very sort of um, striking needs um, in the community. And, you know, firstly, the material stuff always comes up and the psychological um, challenges that they face. And as Wahbi and uh, Dr. Benjamin have spoken, um, these are in communities where people struggle a lot with trauma. So we deal with a lot of cases that involve trauma, that involve violence, that involve um, a need on, on various levels. And, you know, as a psychologist, you almost have to be quite creative in the way that you offer the service. Um, and I am a psycho- psychoanalytical um, 
a practitioner. So even with that, I, I had to use my mind in very creative hmm. ways yeah. to ensure that I offer some kind of containment even within, you know, a very struggling system and an, an environment that's struggling. Yeah. Did you, um, you know, I suppose, and we're really getting tight to the end here, and it's always like this, that I feel like, oh, we need another freaking... <laughs> um, but, Setsi, you... Wabi has suggested that we, we, we also just briefly look at your reflections on the life Esidemeni tragedy. And I think that that's, I mean, when we talk about psychology, when we talk about treatment um, of people, when we talk about trauma and mm. not just the physical trauma of the actual people, but how I think it must have traumatized so many and has traumatized so many people on a much broader level. Just talk us a little bit through that. Mm. I mean, for the purposes of time, I, um, I'll just actually just go straight to what uh, Wahbi mentions in his book around the political unconscious. Yes. And I think that, you know, Life of Sidimeni really showed us what happens when uh, a nation um, is traumatized and there's a psyche in the, in the unconscious that is affected and how that it can be transferred down yeah. to very vulnerable groups. And when we speak about Life of Sidimeni, these were patients that could not speak for themselves, that could not use their bodies, that could not use their minds. Their parents. And, yeah. and we just saw how systemically they were failed by, yeah. you know, the containers that were supposed to actually be taking care of them. And this really just points to the question that you raised earlier on around how is trauma stored? And trauma is stored in the psyche. And if it's not resolved, we see it repeating itself in the way that it was with life as but Ceci Matangi, thank you so much for joining us. We do have to leave it there. Wakbi, I'm going to just um, very briefly read a, a tweet that came through that I'm interested to hear your answer. Someone saying, um, such an amazing interview. I'm curious to hear what Dr. Long thinks about Freud's negation of the relationship to racism. Freud's negation of the relationship to racism. Um, yeah. can, it's a pity that the, the person hasn't uh, expanded uh, a little bit more on that question. Um, is, is that as far as the tweet goes? Yeah, that's as far as the tweet sure. goes. Okay, I'm afraid I, I can't really... I'm, yeah. I'm not entirely sure what, what the person is referring to, but perhaps I can also say, um, Michelle, you know, just looking at Lane and, and Batetzi's uh, interviews, the, the, the watchword really is, is trauma. Yes. Um, what a traumatized um, nation we are. And, and again, how trauma is not just a... A psychological phenomenon. It's it's rooted in in material processes as well, and and therefore why it's so important. I think for psychologists not to lose sight of that, that the psychological is material, and the material is yes. psychological as well. Say that again. Just say that again for us, because it's important. The the psychological is material, and the material is psychological. And when we when we continue to do this Cartesian thing, where we separate mind from matter. Yeah. We, we really are making it very difficult for ourselves to understand um, what's happening in this country. I mean, it's interesting. In closing, you talk about it, uh, the r r mind from matter. You, In fact, in the book, you talk about that there is a problem with René Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Indeed, because the, the idea that I think, therefore I am, is, is built on the, the idea that the mental is, is superior to the material and that therefore no matter how bad my material circumstances are, I can just magically, through <laughs> power of mind over matter, um, lift myself out, lift myself up by the bootstraps out of my circumstances. And of course, 
that just um, cuts, that really is, is, is at odds with the, the enormous suffering of the vast majority of South Africans. Dr. Wachbilong, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you for uh, giving us, as you noted them, your esteemed guests and uh, the great tracks that you offered us. And for anybody who's interested in the book, it's called Nation on the Couch Inside South Africa's Mind. And it is published by Melinda Ferguson Books, MF Books. You can catch it uh, in any of the bookstores. Well, well worth the read if you want to understand who we are better. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.